been our shelter. You worked with our fathers, mothers, other ancestors, and you seem fit to work with us. We come with grateful hearts, Lord, for your faithfulness, your reliability. We thank you for uh, starting this local church. I thank you for starting a church in Acts 2 based upon the work of the cross, the resurrection of our head, and the sending of the blessed comforter, our encouraging helper. We bless your name, Lord. We give you glory for every offering, every missionary supported, every one that has been saved, trained, equipped, blessed, encouraged, edified over these 47 years. Our strength is in you. Our help comes from the Lord. We, uh, we do not boast in man. And we do not boast in our own efforts. We boast in your divine work in each and every one of us. Please accept our thanksgiving. Please be praised in this assembly. Be praised. Deliver us from feuding, from division, from that which breaks the unity uh, of the body and thus distorts the image of Christ. Let us give an active, an active reflection of how wonderful Jesus Christ is. Make it true in each of our lives. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you will, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Good. Thank you. Um, we're starting a series today called Why Church? Why Church? And uh, I would qualify it by What's God's purpose for you and his family? Uh, why, why did God put you in the church? And uh, it, it's a tough subject because most people don't know what the church is. There's all kinds of misconceptions about what the church is. Um, and let me read the text, and then we'll start in these I try to get a handle on what is, what are we talking about when we talk about the church. Let's look at uh, Ephesians 5, <clears throat> and we usually go here to straighten out wives. And I, this is inscribed on in most uh, men's bedrooms for their wives. But there's a much greater theme, it's like a major thesis and a minor application, as it were. The home gets touched, but he's pivoting off the greater and the perfect model, and all human models are all flawed, are imperfect. But notice what he says. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Were men included in that verse? Who is that lone voice? Uh, men? Are you a submissive person? Could your wife learn submission watching you? 
and submitting primarily to Christ. But the command is not applied to anyone yet. Just a result of spirit filling is submissive people. We used to have a man in this church, he said, uh, he, he would come to board meetings and he would say, let me play the devil's advocate. And I finally told him the devil doesn't need any advocates. We don't really seek the devil's opinion on the board. But that was one of his ways that I could always question everything. Uh, why don't you shut up and agree with God? God hasn't made you the devil's advocate, okay? Submission is a male issue as much as a woman's issue. It comes from the Spirit's work of filling us, all of us. Then he's going to apply it. And now the men breathe a sigh of relief. Wives, submit yourselves always to your own husbands. And by the way, it didn't say wives, submit yourself to every man. One's enough. Submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Why do we beat a woman try to get her to be submissive in marriage if she's not submitting to the Lord. And if she's submitting to the Lord, she'll submit wherever the Lord wants her to. Right? I'm going to, I can't help just reading the verse. I want you to get the, the authoritative interpretation. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. That's another good question. Uh, who is the church? Is it made of male and female? Boy, you got, yeah, I, I do not like a quiet church. Antiphonal. You, when I ask that question, if you know the answer, call it back. I'll give you that permission. Are the men in the church? As the church submits to Christ. Does that include men? Yes. Okay, good. Yep. Good. Husbands, love your wives. Yeah, but notice, this is the point we want to emphasize today. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who <clears throat> loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, and if I just read it like that, I would just take it to be the leaving, cleaving, and marriage, the one flesh. Wouldn't you take it that way? I mean, he just said, leave, cleave, come one flesh. This is a mystery. And for sure it is. But then look, but I am talking about Christ 
and the church. It's really not just marriage. I'm talking about Christ and his relationship to his bride, the church. There's so he gives a deep mystery how two can become one, procreate one, a child, and how they become one flesh, that they their identity merges into each other, and it it takes the two to make the one. So marriage, the blending of a man and a woman, the procreation of the race, it's full of um, mystery, wonder. But then he says, but I want you to know that connected is, I'm talking about Christ. How do you become one with him? How do you become considered a member of his body? How is it that you and him are now seen as one in the Father's eyes? It's a great mystery. It's the mystery of the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Let me, before I give you five things Christ does to his church, I'm really thinking of what does Christ think of his church? Let me tell you what most people think when they hear church, okay? Uh, the word came into our language, the word church, came from a German word, came to us, and it meant belonging to the Lord. That's what coming into the English, someone who belongs to the Lord. And I think that's a good handle. Do they really belong to the Lord? Uh, the word church in the Greek, ekklesia, meant to be called out from the world, came to Christ, believing the gospel. So they're a called out people. But I like the added idea, a called out people who belong to the Lord. That's the theological, biblical use of the word. Okay, let's have that. But then, when you go to uh, contemporary concepts of the church, you hear things like this. Um, number one, let's go to church. Is there any problem with that phrase? What's wrong with it? Huh? The church is going to the to the place, right? You're the church. We're the church gathered right now. In about three hours, we'll be the church scattered. And when you go out there, that's the mission field, right? Mission field's out there. Should be here. And so we say building all the time. This is our nice church building. I know the vernacular. We're used to that. But technically, Jesus didn't die for buildings. Jesus doesn't redeem buildings. He redeems people. And so the church is you. People come to this church because of you, and some don't come because of you. There's a saying that goes, to dwell above with saints we love, well, that will be glory. But to dwell below with saints we know, well, that's another story. <laughs> See, I had a guy tell me recently, he said, uh, uh, I came to the church, and I didn't know that I'd ever come back. I said, why? He said, there's somebody on the platform. I didn't like the way they treated me in a situation. 
And I said, so you would judge your whole whether you come or not based on one guy that you saw up front? I said, yeah. What they think of the church. Um, it's not a denomination. Uh, and, uh, and you could be a Christian and be in a denomination, but they're not equal. Uh, you know, Presbyterians baptize babies. Uh, we don't agree with that. Do we think Presbyterians are going to heaven? Why? Why? They know Jesus Christ. And uh, so we differ. There's Baptist. Uh, I went to a Mennonite school, which was really a German Baptist movement. And because uh, they were Anabaptists from Menno Simmons. You know what Anabaptist means? You're baptized a Lutheran. You're baptized this. We say you must be Anna again baptized. And they were persecuted and hated for that. So there's all kinds of groups. But is Jesus Christ, Lord, is he their Savior? Have they trusted him? And so they're not the same. Uh, I like to say this. Not everything done in the name of church is church. There's a lot of groups. You can be an atheist group and file as a church. You can use the name church for all kinds of stuff. See, it's... Uh, uh, a lot of things. Let me say this. Beware of cults. There's five marks of a cult that Anthony Hokima gives in his book, Four Major Cults. And I think you should just be aware of these four or five characteristics of them. Number one, cults always have an extra biblical source of revelation. B book of Mormon. Uh, Watchtower edition of the New Testament. Uh, uh, all these different groups that have other, uh, uh, Mary Baker Eddy, they've got another source of revelation, Koran, whatever. We are people that our faith is expressed in one revelation only, the Bible. Okay? So if you're not from the Bible, you're cultic. You're cultic. Two, they deny justification by grace alone. They say they're always... There's a work system there. Can or how? Ask them, how can you go to heaven? I got a guy that's a nice guy. I have some acquaintance with him. He can never tell me how to go to heaven. But he's in church every Sunday. He's at church that I'm afraid may be a cult. He cannot tell me how to get to heaven. But he's as religious as he can be. Can you be? Tell me how I can be right with God. Is it by grace or by works? Okay, the cults will always have works. Three, they always devalue the person and work of Christ. They will always underplay the cross, <clears throat> underplay what was accomplished, and so they get a Christ that's either not deity or didn't do enough to purchase your salvation. Uh, you've got to do a little bit more. You got to. So that's culty. Fourthly. They believe they are the exclusive people of God. You've got to belong to them to really make it. You've got to belong to them because they've got a monopoly on belonging to God. And fifth, they always usually picture themselves as a key player in end-time prophecy. They're usually obsessed with prophecy to the point they make their group, their group, as a critical factor in last day prophecy. And so they start setting dates, 
they start saying we're the ones it you know so they become not only exclusive but we're going to have a vital last day role in the coming of Christ setting up his kingdom uh, even if you took uh, we're we don't know that we're one of 144,000 but there will be that many in the kingdom and our hope is that we will be one of them well we just say guess what if you know Jesus you'll be in his kingdom you'll be there and we don't count to 144,000 see so it goes beyond now five things Christ and what he thinks about the church number one Christ says I am the head of the church I'm over he says we love to say submit to Christ wives to your husbands your head as the church submits to Christ who is head there's been debate what does this word mean does it mean source uh or does it mean authority? It means authority primarily. Direction. In charge. Jesus Christ is the head of his church, which is the body of which he is the Savior. Now, I love that. Uh, who is the head of the church of Jesus Christ? If you bought an item in the store... Does the purse, does the pair of shoes have the right to tell you what you would do with it? I mean, in purchase, there is a possession. In purchase is a taking on of ownership. And so the first thing we got to establish, the church over which Christ claims is a people that acknowledge his authority over their lives. They say, he's not telling me what to do. Who is he? Wait, wait, wait. You don't know him. You're not in the true church. Those in the true church have a Lord that is called the head of the church. My toes don't tell my brain how to think. The members don't run the head. Uh, I'm reminded in this situation that years ago when we were at the hall where we began, we had some kind of, we used to have family, we called them family business meetings, but sometimes business meetings could be all business and little family. Uh, and so it, there was some hot issue. I don't know what it was. And, and if you watch yourself, most of the issues you're fighting over today, give yourself a few years, you'll forget the issue. You'll forget the issue. Uh, can't think of what the issue was, but I assumed it was going to be a hot issue, and I was afraid we'd be a divided church, whatever that issue was, and uh, uh, I just that night, I said, you know what, uh, I think in those days, maybe a Phil Ross or something, he, he was better at Robert's Rules and Order, he would conduct the meeting, but I, I set a uh, chair on the platform, I said, I know we have some hot issues we're going to discuss tonight, but I just want you to know the chairman of this meeting is the invisible Christ who sits in the chair. Don't say or do anything that contradicts him. He's, he owns this place. He's the boss, not the elders. 
not the pastor, not the pope, Jesus. And the only way we know what Jesus' authority is, is he has said some things that he's told us to follow. But let me ask you, do you live your life under the awareness that God has given you direction, given you guidance, given you someone in the glory that knows how to get dumb sheep to the destination he has for you. He's the head. He's the brains of this outfit. He's the decision making. He doesn't need a vote. He's already won it. He's got the office by way of the grave and by way of resurrection. He is the boss of the church I'm You might belong to a church. He's not the boss. I'd recommend finding another church. I wouldn't go to the church that I didn't think Jesus got his way. Now, that doesn't mean he won't have a bunch of flawed sheep because you all are flawed just like me. Don't look for a perfect church because you'll ruin it the moment you join. (laughs) There is no such thing in this life. But he is the head. And he says, I will give direction. I, I will distribute spiritual gifts. I will distribute the Holy Spirit. I'll make a difference in you and me. I'll cause your church to grow or not grow. See, uh, when we grow, we, it's quick to say we're doing something right. We got a method that we can lay the claim. Maybe it's the head of the church that I will add to you. He said that in Acts 2. He added to the day to the church daily such as should be saved. Hey, only he does the real addition. We can get a crowd maybe and maybe not, but the head, the living head, you are under, you are under him, this gracious, loving Savior is the head of your life now because we are dummies. We are sheep in need of shepherding. You don't know how to get there. You were in a mess, most likely, when he found you. Don't start telling him how to lead you. He will lead you. He will watch over you. Two, he said he loves his church. Husbands, love your wives just like Christ loved the church, and he gave himself for it. It is amazing how people who love you interpret you versus your critics. I mean, uh, I had a pastor that's going through a rough time, and, and he just used one day, he told me, he said, you know what, if you fill my week and you show the week to my mother versus showing it to my critics, he said, my critics would give you about 10 things about that week. They see this fault, they don't like that. My mother would just say, what a wonderful son. What changes? The information, same information, different interpretation. Love covers a multitude of sin. Where uh, love is thin, faults are thick. According to 1 Corinthians 13, love does not keep a record of wrong suffered. Love is patient. I would rip that out if I could. Uh, love is kind. Uh, love is gentle. 
All of this is void in Acts. He said, Jesus Christ loves his church. Matter of fact, he told the Laodiceans, I am rebuking you. I'm going to spew you out of my mouth, and I'm going to tell you, everyone I love, I correct. God's children are loved so much, he corrects, trains, leads us, but he loves his church. He is not the critic of the church. He knows what's wrong with it. He knows when we lose first love. He knows when we tolerate Jezebel. He knows all the sins of the seven churches, and he prescribes change, do this. So he's not blind to our faults, and he tells us what we ought to do to correct them. But just know you belong to a person who loves you, and he said, my major proof is I died for you. I've already paid a price to make you. What would you feel about something? That's why mother love, I think, might be unique in human love. Because to have a baby, to go through the nine months pregnancy, to go through the childbirth process, to do the nursing, to do the diaper change, I'm telling you, uh, the women have a major investment in our life. Major, I'm not saying men don't, but they've been in so many cultures where the men know how to get her pregnant, but they're not there for much more. And she, that's why you think of mother love, of that enfolding, nurturing, affectionate. It's why so many men, the most tender moments, mama, you know, haggard, saying, mama tried, mama tried, but I'm serving time. But she tried. There's some, and here Jesus is saying, uh, church, church, church. You belong to someone that loves you. I love the church. I gave my life for the church. Why don't you? Do you love it? Are you a critic of it? And the critics are usually the non-participating. They can be the ones that want to be served and are not. I find those who are greatest servants are our least critical. They're always trying to correct, improve, do whatever they can. Where do you fit in God's church? You're under the control and the guidance of a loving, loving head. What a Savior he is. Now, what's he plan to do with the church? I just make number three that uh, he says, I am going to clean up the church. I'm always having to clean the church. First uh, John 1.7, his blood continually is cleansing us from all sin. And here he says that he, to make her holy is his goal, and he's cleansing her by the washing with water. And the water here is likened to his word, so that... Uh, Regeneration, being born again in Titus 3 is taking a bath, he says. God makes you, washes you clean from all your sins. But it's quite interesting how much dirt you pick up while walking through the world. Uh, you remember Peter, he wanted the Lord to give him a bath, and, and the Lord knew he had a bath. So you don't need a bath, you just need your feet washed. Because your feet get dirty walking through this world. You need to be born again, but you will still get dirty in this world. You'll be around a lot of things that will soil, a lot of things that can 
poison the mind. The images are coming at us all the time. You're walking. I had a friend lived in India. He said the worst thing was having to always dodge human feces to get into his office. He said it was filthy where he lived. Uh, people used everywhere, everywhere, every place they went. It was the restroom. So he said just to manage hygiene and to get around to where go to a place where there's no showers. Go to a place where there's no gutters. Go to a place where there's no public sanitation. Uh, in these cultures that Jesus started his church in, they were pretty dirty. Odors were bad. And he says, I'm taking a church, a people that I saved, and I'm taking them out of idolatry. I'm taking them out of Judaism. I'm taking them from some dirty, dirty places. And one of the things I will do for my people is I will begin a cleansing project. Making them clean. I'll, I'll wash their mind. I'm going to wash their mouth out. I'm going to wash their morals. I'm going to wash their motives. I'm going to cleanse. I'm going to scrub. I'm going to scrub. I'm going to scrub. When we lived in the projects, I think I got a bath once a week. When there's seven of us, that's a luxury. Just a tub, no showers. I don't know when I got it. But I used to dread. I'm a little guy. I'm second grade, maybe third. My mother, I could still hear her. Philip, did you wash your hair? Yeah. I didn't, but I, I didn't want her messing with me. And she'd come in, and, and we hadn't, I don't think we discovered shampoo by that time, but we did bar soap. You ever had your hair washed with a bar of soap? Get them. Say, Mama, this is not a washboard. She didn't, oh, no, no, we're going to get this. Boom. I want to be dirty. Leave me alone. You won't be. You represent me. A lot of times you say to boys, have you showered? And they say, why do you need to shower? It's been a week. I'm always saying to my grandchildren, have you brushed your teeth? I mean, to have halitosis at eight is bad. <laughs> but, you know, they get to go, and they got to be taught how to be clean, how to be clean, how to get. And, and Jesus says, I just want you to know I'm going to be the cleansing agent to you. I'm going to cleanse you, and my soap will be my word. And James said that. We'll behold him in his word, and he shows us where we're blemished. And he says, you need to stand there long enough. Don't take a casual glance. If you be James 2, he says, some just look in the mirror and I'm all right. No, you don't know. You don't stay in it long enough to see you're not all right. Just hang out. Keep looking. You aren't that clean. Are you looking? Has the word, he said, it's a critic. It's an x-ray. It's an x-ray. I just had a CT scan, put dye in me. Oh, yeah. But we'll, we'll find things in there your doctor hasn't found. Because we got powerful, powerful rays that are going to read what's going on in your body. And the Word of God is an x-ray machine. It, it, it actually takes an x-ray of your motives, your intents, your attitudes, 
It does all of that. And Jesus said, I want to scrub out that attitude. Oh, you grew up being a racist? I want to scrub that out of you. It doesn't fit my bride. You grew up being in love with the rich. You don't have any use for poor people. I mean, you don't have, you're not broad enough in your social spectrum. You're always selecting people by dress, prestige. When are you going to start loving people and quit always finding what category you like? Do you love people? Don't do you love white? Do you like brown? Hey, when did you get to pick the color people God puts in your life? You're not in charge of the color scheme. You hear? If you don't like their color, you're taking on their creator. Don't mess with the creator's handiwork. God made you the color you are because he likes it. It doesn't matter if anybody else does. And he wants his people to like what he likes. That's what he does when he cleanses us. And then in this same word, he does something else. Uh, while he's scrubbing you, he's actually setting you apart. And what he's setting you apart for, he, uh, his word says he sanctifies you, sets you apart for sacred use, not just to isolate you, but he's setting you apart, John 17, 17. He sanctifies us through his word, through the truth, and his word is truth. But you know why he's sanctifying you, setting you apart, setting you apart? He's planning to marry us. Uh, you all are getting ready for the greatest wedding of all time. And women and men are in the bride. That's quite a deal, isn't it, men? You've never been a bride before, but you are in the bride. Uh, and, and he said he's doing this cleansing and watch this, verse 26. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And I love this, presenting him, uh, her to himself. And in the Greek, the himself is up close in the beginning of the verse. This is his project. You know what? I didn't do anything that I know of to prepare my girls for their wedding day except pay the bill. And I'm still bitter about that. But uh, th this project, this beautification of the church, the bride, he is to, for him, he's going to present her to himself, and himself is strong in this. It's him. It's his project. I'm preparing you for my wedding day to you. I'm going to make you look like what I'm going to marry for eternity. We're headed towards the marriage supper of the Lamb. This formal, some way, God the Father is going to be there, and the Son, and we some way are married. The bride, he's engaged to us right now. And Paul said, I presented you as an engaged virgin. I'm wanting you to be pure until wedding day. So some way in all that language, metaphor, analogy, however you understand it, he says, I am preparing you for the day you and I exchange vows in front of God and angels. And I'm going to beautify you for the day. And he uses a physical bride. He says, on that day you will be radiant. 
the manifest glory of God will be displayed. You'll be without stain, no spot, uh, nothing like that, or wrinkle. Uh, at first, I took that to be their garment, but uh, as I said, it, it means in your face. So the bride will look young. Uh, no wrinkles. Uh, no eyelids that need to be fixed. Uh, and there will be no other blemish, but you'll look holy and blameless. And what he's doing, he's using physical beauty to liken to what it will be morally and spiritually in his sight. There will be nothing you could find wrong with the bride. He'll see to it. Can you imagine that someday Jesus is going to say, you're a knockout. You're a knockout. You're beautiful to me. He says that kind of language in Ezekiel 16 when he says, Israel, when I found you, I found you in the wilderness. Nobody pitied you. I found you in the blood of afterbirth, and you were ready to perish. Then he goes to verse 14, and he says, I raised this girl that became beautiful. But in verse 14, he says, And you became beautiful with the splendor I bestowed upon you. All your beauty I gave you. I made you beautiful. Gaither years ago wrote a song, Something Beautiful, Something Good. All my confusion he understood. It's amazing where he brings people from from sin, the corruption, the dirt, the filth of sin. Sin is a dirty object. Sin soils the soul. And he said, but based upon the work I do at the cross and based upon my love and my process, you're going to be beautiful by that day. He finally says that a husband ought to nourish and cherish his wife like Christ nourishes and cherishes his church. And the word nourish there literally is the idea of raising children. And involved in that raising is feeding, feeding them. But the idea is whatever it takes to make you grow up. I'm going to nourish you. I'm going to raise you. And he says raise children that way and Ephesians 6. But I love what it says, raise these children, and he says, and cherish them while you do it. And the word uh, had the word heat, uh, flame, and what it meant was passionate love. Then it came to be used of tenderness, affection, probably that would be the word, affectionately rear, rear this child in the bonds of affection, tenderness, kindness. Probably nothing more heartbreaking than to see a child raised harshly, meanly, boxed at the store, and boxed and called stupid. And my, you can just see it when you're in the marketplace. Boom, get out of the way. You're just in my way. Boom, boom. Oh, break your heart. He's saying, that's where you do a child. It takes lots of patience to raise children. 
I'm glad I married such a woman that it was really good at it. I knew how to spank, but too quick. Too quick in the early days. As you get older, you don't need a spanking for everything. Sometimes they need to be embraced and explained. One of the best things I did do, I had them sit in my lap and hug them after spankings because I didn't want to rift. I'm glad I did that. God is raising you tenderly, training you to come up and to be the kind of bride, the kind of people he wants. So I would call you to a divine perspective on church because many people have been hurt in church. They've got all kinds of images. I mean, churches have done crazy things. Congregations, I mean, they've split, they've fought. It's, but the goal is for us to act like Christ, right? And to become what? Why did he want a church? To love, to raise, to be tender, to nourish his church. And what I'm hoping you'll find out in the weeks to come, what purpose and place he has planned for you in his church, in the people who belong to him, has he got a plan? And he definitely has a plan. And I would just say, when the church uh, is going tough times, uh, discipline maybe, uh, all the tests that come to a family of believers, just like your personal life, we go through seasons, seasons, seasons. Remember, Christ loves the church, and he wants you to love it like him. Love it like him. Don't be bitter. Don't, don't paint one group like it. You've got to keep looking to Jesus. He is the perfect model. The rest of us are still imperfect. We're in process. Still in process. Father, I thank you that you have saved millions and put them under the headship of Jesus and that Jesus is loving millions of people that belong to him and he even loves a world that has rejected him as a whole. God has so loved this world that he gave a son. I pray, Father, that we'll be the church you want us to be, that we will grow up, that we will respond to your love, to your affection, and your tender care. Don't let us play church. Don't let us play, oh, a certain label. Let us be the real thing. Let us truly know the Lord Jesus, of which we are his bride, and will be spending eternity with him. We bless your name that you started with us and that you're claiming us up. And I, I, I can't take it in. It's a mystery. How in the world will it be on wedding day for the church and Christ? I'm assuming at the marriage supper of the Lamb, what will that look like? What a day. At least you said we won't look ugly. We won't be blemished. There'll be no faults. Nothing to distract. We'll be clothed in the perfect righteousness of your son. 
and his beauty treatments through this whole life will make us fit to be a bride for eternity. We're looking forward to the wedding day. We're looking forward to that day. Let us stand. Let us stand.